stop and we can adjust the volume. So some years ago, I was doing some personal practice in Burma, where one of our teachers uh, taught for a long time, Seda Upandita, before he passed away last year. And I entered the interview room to give my usual report. And before I got to the place where I would kneel down and make my bows, he asked a question while I was walking in and he said, what is equanimity? What is equanimity? Which implies balance. Um, So, you know, it's always like, is this the trick question? (laughs) So I always get a little bit nervous when he did that. But after I took my place and I knelt down um, and uh, answered the question, I said, to him that what I understand about equanimity is that it is a balance of energy and uh, concentration. There's always there's also faith and wisdom, and he nodded in approval, and reminded me about mindfulness. That's part of it, also. And he gave this analogy uh, that I love. I love the analogies and the stories that the Buddha would tell in order to uh, bring forth a a theme. And it always usually had to do with some kind of path. Sometimes it did. So he said, this equanimity which is balance is like a chariot being pulled by five horses. In the lead is mindful awareness. And behind the first pair of horses Behind the the first pair, the horses are faith and wisdom. And behind that pair is concentration and energy. When faith and wisdom are in balance, and concentration and energy are in balance, then the lead horse, mindful awareness, has little work. So it's it's really a, a very important... Uh, offering of a Dharma talk that he gave, you know, 2,600 years ago, that helps us to understand what is balance in practice, the practical ways of looking at it. So he, Upandita went on to say that then this chariot, it's called usually the chariot to Nibbana, the chariot to freedom, is led effortlessly smoothly and powerfully towards liberation, liberating and freeing the heart of greed, hatred, and delusion. So this talk tonight is about those five cardinal virtues or spiritual faculties that really help us to understand how to balance our practice so that we can check ourselves and see, is, this, is there a little too much here? little less there 
and how can we kind of uh, support our balance bit by bit. So they are, and let me uh, repeat again, mindfulness is at the lead, then there's faith and wisdom, concentration and energy. All of these are active powers in and of themselves when we practice. And some of them really have to do very directly as the antidotes to the five hindrances, which we'll speak more of as the days go by, and especially tomorrow in the, um, uh, when we give the instructions for meditation. We'll talk about the hindrances and the ones that, uh, the antidotes to them, how to work with them. So these active powers, uh, these spiritual faculties, become stronger as the practice gains momentum. And this is as the mindfulness uh, keeps going, has continuity and momentum. Each of these five powers, these five faculties, become stronger and stronger. So they have their own specific function, And it's helpful to understand how they work, so I'll talk about their function and how they perform. And each one harmonizes with the other faculties. And this is to establish the balance needed for clear comprehension, leading to uh, wisdom and eventually leading to freedom. So what they do is they coordinate and also corral, bring together, the potential of the other supportive faculties inherent in the mind stream, the beautiful qualities of the mind. Like, for example, uh, loving-kindness and compassion, uh, equanimity, sympathetic joy, those four Brahma-viharas, other faculties, other supportive qualities of the mind also, like renunciation and... uh, equanimity itself, balance. These five faculties coming into balance really are the co- one of the causes and conditions for deep equanimity to arise. So all of these uh, supportive faculties direct themselves towards the possibility of liberation. And this is why they're so important. They bring the mind and heart to uh, a stiller harmony. They're essential for our basic peace and happiness, actually. And they guide us further towards ultimate liberation. So it's really important to listen carefully about these uh, faculties. The Buddha points out that these and all of the instructions that he gave us cannot be bestowed upon us by any other being but ourselves, that we have to uh, practice in order for the potential in our own minds and hearts to be developed. We all have this potential, it's really just a matter of developing it, so it gets stronger and stronger. We nurture their growth, sometimes by understanding them and how they work, so that we can recognize their strength or their weakness in our practice and incline the mind towards uh, more strength or disincline the mind towards, say, for example, if there's too much energy. So it's said that they're called 
five spiritual faculties, but uh, as they grow stronger, they become the five spiritual powers. So I'd like to read the words of one of our uh, very devoted and honored translators of the teachings of the Buddha, Bhikkhu Bodhi. Uh, He's an American Theravadan monk who edited many major works that you might see on um, bookshelves of people who read the Buddha's words, like the Majjhima Nikaya, the Anguttara Nikaya, and um, many of the others uh, that uh, we read today and are connected with the teachings from 2,500, 600 years ago. So he said something very compelling, which I copied, because when I give this talk, also I like, I like to remind myself. Left to itself, without the guidance of a superior source of instruction, the mind is prey to forces that swell up from within itself. Habitual forces which hold us in subjection and prevent us from attaining our own highest welfare and genuine good. These forces are the defilements, the hindrances. Sometimes we know them in Pali as the kilesas. As long as we live and act under their dominion, we're not our own masters, but we're passive pawns, driven by our blind desires into courses of conduct that promise fulfillment, but in the end lead only to misery and bondage. True freedom necessarily involves the attainment of inner autonomy, the strength to withstand the pushes and pulls of our appetites, and this is accomplished precisely by the development of these five spiritual faculties. So very important. So tonight let's look at each factor at a time and how one naturally is a cause and condition for the other ones to arise. And then I'll fill each one out and kind of give you more data that your mind takes in and and puts it together with what wisdom and facts and understandings experientially you already know and understand to deepen your practice. So I'll give more attention to some of them than to others because some of the others may be uh, filled out in later talks. So the first faculty is faith. What faith does, faith in our teachers, faith in the teachings of whatever we can understand and carry forth, uh, and faith in ourselves. So faith in ourselves is actually the most um, difficult sometimes, but it is uh, the, the most center, uh, the center most of all of them. Because faith brings forth that confidence to keep going, to take the first step and to get to the last step in this, if there is one, of this continual journey. And the second uh, faculty is energy. Energy helps that confidence uh, that arises go, uh, it helps that confidence go into an energetic practice. Not energetic, meaning to say that it's, you know, full of kind of restless energy, but it's full of uh, the energy of continuity that's able to gather momentum, that gentle, persevering energy 
that we have in the practice bit by bit. So some degree of that confidence and effort leads us in the right direction of inner freedom. We need this kind of energy to keep going, to begin and to keep going. It's a relaxed energy. So you'll hear us say that word a lot in the instructions and ways of responding about your practice. It's relaxed and sustainable. These are really important understandings to have. It's persevering energy. Not a big push, but gentle, sustaining energy. So what we're going for in the practice is continuity. Relaxed continuity, sustainable energy. And this brings us to the next faculty, which is mindful awareness. And this is awareness not on one single experience, like keeping the mind and uh, mindfulness on the breath over and over again. It's not that. Nor is it like a, a kind of sustained over and over again attention to like metta practice. These are more concent- they can be more concentration practices, these two, on the breath or metta. Um, but this mindful awareness that we're doing in our insight practice, which we also call vipassana, is on changing experiences. So you'll notice that we've given you instructions on how to be with whatever arises in the field of awareness. So whatever arises in the six sense doors of the body and the uh, five sense doors of the body and the uh, sense door of the mind. And so this is, these sense doors are always arising, uh, presenting themselves, coming into being, changing and dissolving, passing away in one way or another. So it, this kind of concentration, this kind of mindful awareness is on these changing objects over and over and over again. And actually, this develops the kind of samadhi, uh, samadhi that we need in our practice, the kind of concentration that we need in our practice. Because we're able to develop that kind of relaxed continuity, moment to moment to moment, on different changing objects. And the, the beauty of that and the reasoning for that um, is that when we're able to do that, to develop a kind of stability, an inner stability, even when things change. Basically, it has a very practical uh, benefit, is that when we're in our daily lives, things are changing all the time, we're able to have that kind of steadiness, that inner stability, even through the changing experiences of life. So whatever happens, we're able to face it, to be with it, with a kind of relaxed steadiness, and we're able to act appropriately because we can see clearly what's going on. We're not in this kind of deep samadhi that we just don't do anything. It's really wonderful and beautiful to be in those kinds of states of mind, but that's not the kind of stability, inner stability of mind that we need in our daily lives. We need the kind of stability where we can be with whatever's changing, what's pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, 
in all the various ways those things manifest. So when the mind can do this, mindfulness can do this, it creates um, that deep stability and it gathers momentum so that the, the continuity can continue moment by moment by moment. So it steadies the mind and it unifies the mind, meaning to say that it gathers the mind's energy and it stabilizes it so it can stay on this experience and then when that dissolves it's able to see that and then another experience and mindful awareness is able to mirror also that changing nature of that and a lot of deep wisdom comes from that so more on that as as we go on in the practice and in the uh, dharma talks how that deep wisdom is developed so um this is a kind of concentration that's needed when there's no resistance to what's happening there's no ignoring what's happening like you know we don't turn away from it because it's hard there's an ability to stay open as i said there's no avoiding or pushing away all of these things that happen when something unpleasant arises it strengthens the mind so that it's more and more able to stay with the difficulties this first noble truth which is the truth of suffering the first noble truth to really be able to open to that in a way where your mind feels cooled out and relaxed um and not kind of wobbly and also reactive so it also sees that when something arises that is pleasant and uh we like it and we you know we want to go towards it and hold on to it. it the mind just begins to see that it's not worthy of that kind of energy that we put there you know going towards to um wrap our our mind around it our hands around it wanting to keep it there because there's a deepening knowledge that it doesn't last enjoy it while it's here and um be aware of the enjoyment and it it goes away and so that deepening wisdom happens there is a uh, an ability for the mind to stop clinging so this of course is in part the deepening of wisdom that faith brings the energy to do what needs to be done which leads to a kind of sustainable awareness on changing experience it develops that concentration which is stability of mind and it begins to see life in a really profound way the development of wisdom so these are the five faculties in a way in a progressional way where you see the a uh, bringing up of one the the bringing up of faith kind of leads the way to all the others so now how how is it in balance with one another that's how i want to show in terms of how you can watch the balance in your own practice. So this is kind of um a talk which is you know uh, just a quite a bit informational. You need to be able to take what is being said and apply it to your own experience. So you know, oh okay, that's I know what happens when the 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 practice goes in that direction. And I've experienced that before. Oh, I'll be more alert to this when 
that kind of thing comes up. So when faith and and wisdom are in balance, um, then that's really good. You can see that you've got the faith to take a step and you can do a lot of things based on faith and not so much on just thinking about it so much, which comes in the wisdom area. Sometimes we get these insights and we begin to think about it so much that we start getting lost and we lose our momentum to keep going because we got kind of hooked up in thinking about some insight that came up. And what we need to do is develop a little more faith. Okay, just keep practicing, keep aware of what's happening, and carry on. We can let go of trying to figure out how that insight arose. And then there's energy and concentration that needs to be in balance, where we, especially when we see that we're striving too much, we're wanting something out of practice, so it's kind of like we tighten up, and when that, that's when there's too much energy, and we, um, it, it doesn't work that way. There's no stillness of mind. The, the mind and heart and body are not uh, unified and, and we feel pretty scattered. So we need to maybe veer the mind towards more concentration, more stillness. So maybe we need, at that point, we need a little more bringing the attention to the breath over and over to some, um, some single object, like sometimes I go to hearing more. And I'll give you a few more pointers as we go along in that. But we need that balance of energy and concentration. If it becomes imbalanced, then it it becomes um, it feels uh, the path feels a little bit uneven and wobbly, and we don't really feel uh, smooth in our practice. So, want to fill out faith a little more. When I was last practicing with one of our teachers, Seydou Utejaniya, from also from Burma, in an interview, I remarked to him that nowadays it's interesting, you know, faith is the first one on the list. And yet nowadays, after 40 years of practice, I feel that it's the one that's showing up the most uh, in terms of what I need in the practice. Because... It, Sometimes it gets harder. You know, life situations get harder um, just because the body's aging and things are happening more around us in this day and age that makes us feel uncomfortable. So there can be a lot more dukkha that's happening. More dukkha means suffering. And also inwardly, the response to it can be very cool, cool down and calm in some ways. But in some ways we feel it more. We feel the, that suffering more. We're, it's, the mind is able to come closer to it and touch it more. And so if you have the idea that you've been on the path for a long time and it's just going to get less and less dukkha, well, some of the major parts of dukkha lessen, like um, the, the parts around ignorance. That's a big suffering ignorance and delusion. But the mind starts getting closer and closer to seeing how attachment is just so sticky and um, how it's tiring 
and how aversion, the mind that just, you know, re- reacts to everything like fire comes up in the mind and kind of burns us out somehow. And it's, it's hot in there. So we really feel that much more and so we need to practice even more. And we need a measure of faith that might be more than we had before. So that's what uh, Sayadaw Utejini explained to me. Because I noticed that there's a lot more faith sometimes that's needed. And I actually sense a lot more faith in my practice. He reminded me that even if just one of the faculties is strengthened, if we're really careful with our practice, it lifts the other ones up. The other ones also become stronger. So I'm just remembering um, a, uh, let me get to it, a um, quote by Martin Luther King Jr. that said, Faith is taking the first step even when you don't see the whole staircase. And sometimes I feel that, you know, whether it's kind of going deeper into, into wisdom and compassion or, you know, going in this direction upward. It's like, I can't see what's next. But, okay, I'm willing to go. And so that's what faith helps us to do. Um, It provides inspiration so that when we can have the intention to to aspire to something greater than what we know already, we're willing to know more than uh, an open more to to the Dharma, to to life, as it's really showing itself, then that level of faith meets that aspiration. And if we don't have that uh, aspiration and we're just kind of um, satisfied with the status quo and or we're not willing to go on when it's difficult, then um, the faith won't rise to the occasion. So we really need to pay attention to faith, which includes our willingness to rise to the occasion of the more suffering that appears sometimes in our lives. So it's faith that steers the mind away from doubt, and it weakens it by the presence of faith. So that's one of the of the five hindrances, it's one of the most difficult to discern. Because sometimes we don't even know what's up, but we just don't want to continue, or we feel overwhelmed. We don't know what's, it's not something like we have aversion, or we have attachment to something, it's more like we just don't have the willingness to go on. And we're confused. And it takes somebody else to point out to us is there a doubt in the mind? And then there's all of a sudden an aha. Okay, that's what it is. And then when an awareness is brought to it, it sort of is the, the light that kind of sees the shadow and faces the shadow and then, you know, everything's lit up. And mindfulness mirrors what's really happening in that moment. It's not hidden anymore. It, it shows up. And so when mindfulness is really strong, it sees all these various hindrances. 
but especially with the help of faith, then doubt is really seen clearly. So faith um, needs to be willing to take the next step. And even if you can't see it, it keeps an eye on the our highest aspirations. I love this saying um, that I heard from one of our senior colleagues, Joseph Goldstein. Um, the first step depends on the last. That means, you know, you're on this path and you kind of know, as far as I can see, that's where the, the path is headed. That's where I'm taking these steps. As far as the mind can see right now. And so that means the first step depends on the last. Because you won't take that first step unless you have some intention. And the last step depends on the first because you can't get there if you don't take that first step. So Martin Luther King, faith is taking the first step even when you don't see the whole staircase or the whole path. So when faith is present, it's not paralyzed by doubt. It's a, I can do this attitude of mind. There is a devotion to our practice. It's not a devotion to somebody or something outside of ourselves. It's a devotion connected to our own ability to be on this path that we've chosen. And it gives wisdom a greater chance to grow when we have faith. So faith and wisdom are really connected here. I love the word devotion because it's a heart quality. It's connected to the love of the Dharma, to the love of real freedom. Not just in the outer world includes that, but also the inner world. It's a very rich um, experience to connect with faith in ourselves, to really know that there is enough faith there. Or sometimes we understand how much faith we really have. So there are three basic areas we have faith in. In the teachings, in the teachers, and most important, in ourselves, in our potential for awakening. And I'm filling out this one much more because at the beginning of practice we need a lot of faith to keep going on our path. No matter how many times you've been in a retreat, when you come again, you need to renew uh, our determination, uh, renew those places where we need inspiration. So in the Dhamma we say, Ehi pasiko, come and see for yourself. Whenever I would ask my teacher, Manindraji, my first teacher, about this and that, he would always give very full answers. But he would say something like, the Buddha solved his problem, now you have to solve your own. Like, I'm, I give up telling you about all this stuff. You need to just do your practice now, you know. And you could ask Manindra a question in the morning, and he wouldn't finish answering it till the next day, maybe, you know, when you were in the car driving somewhere. Um, he gave a full answer, but he really expected you to do your own practice. So sometimes we don't know what to do or who to believe or 
Um, There's so much available that you can't keep up with the advice that's being given. I love this story in the suttas about a group of people in India. And this is a, uh, the group of people called the Kalamas. And they were so confused by so many spiritual teachers coming through their area that they didn't know who or what to follow. I mean, I just go to my health food store where I live and the, the bulletin board is just plastered with all kinds of things and you could go to something three times a day, different things, and you still wouldn't be done in a week with all the things that are offered. It's really confusing. <laughs> one of my um, co-teachers, Carol Wilson, one time when she came to visit me and we went to the health food store, she said, no wonder not a lot of people come to your sittings. <laughs> There's too many other things to go to, you know, and it, it's really hard to do this practice. So it's really a lot easier to go and have somebody, you know, tell you, um, you know, the things that they do that um, seem, seem a lot easier, but sometimes they're not either. So the Buddha, when approached by this group of villagers, uh, the Kalamas, uh, they went to him and said, ask him a question. Venerable sir, there is doubt, there is uncertainty in us concerning all these teachings. Which of these, reverend, uh, is the truth and which is falsehood? And the Buddha replied, It is proper for you to doubt, to be uncertain. Do not go upon what has been acquired by repeated learning, nor upon tradition, nor upon rumor, nor upon what is in the scriptures, nor upon surmise, nor upon reasoning, nor upon a bias toward a notion that has been pondered upon for a long time, nor upon another's seeming ability, nor upon the consideration this monk or nun or person is our teacher. Kalamas, when you yourselves know that these things are wholesome, these things are not blamable, these things are praised by the wise, and when undertaken and observed, these things lead to benefit and happiness, then enter upon them and abide in them. But when you see and know these things are unwholesome, they're blamable, they lead to harm and ill will, then abandon them. So basically the Buddha is saying, you have to see for yourselves. You have to try it out and see how it works for you. And you may make little adjustments, of course, um, but you need to test for yourself. And he, is, he never asked anybody to you know, it required them to um, be his student. So in, in the Dhamma, faith uh, is translated in, um, in a very particular way. It means you can place your heart upon it. You know, if you can place your heart upon it, that you know it's really true, you believe it with your heart, you understand it from your heart and your experience, then this is faith. So all along the way, faith needs to be renewed in oneself. 
there was one time in practice when um, I went to the teacher, and it was one of those really hard times. We call it roll-up-the-mat times. You know, I wanted to go home. But I was far away from home, and um, I went to Sayadaw Pandita. It, this was in Australia, and, and I lived thousands of miles away from there. And um, so I said, I can't take it anymore. I just have to go home. It's too much for me. There's so much suffering in the body. There's so much suffering in the mind. I'm just not going to make it. And um, really, I just fell on the floor in a puddle of, of my own tears, so to say. And um, so he had a translator with him who spoke, he was Nepalese, Unyanaponika, and he spoke English. So they talked a little bit and they were like, what, what to do? You know, it, it was um, not very many times that yet that Sayadaw had begun teaching Westerners. So here's this person just on the floor crying, you know, what to do with this person? And so um, they talked and looked really serious. And then Anaponika said to me, when it gets too difficult, then, um, and I told them that it was difficult mostly in the walking practice because the body was so painful. And I felt like there were four horses connected, one each to all my limbs, and they were tearing me apart. I mean, it was really terrible. And he said, when you feel that way, then just stop mindfully and bend over and pull up your socks mindfully and then get up and begin again. (laughs) And I said, okay. (laughs) And you know what? They didn't know what to say, I think. But just do whatever you do, do it do it mindfully, but, and why don't you do that, you know? So, um, so you know, when, I ha- when I'm in cold places, like I was here for, at the Forest Refuge for a month in my own personal practice, I would remember that. It would actually bring me a lot of delight, you know? So I'd be walking in the dining room, and it's like, oh, I want to stop, you know? Let me go lay down, or uh, this is too hard sometimes. You know, it's more like, okay laziness sometimes. So I just bend down, pull up my socks, and start again. It gave me more delight than anything else. So there are three basic kinds of faith. You know, blind faith is when you're not yet trusting your own experience because you don't really know it, basically. You're just, you're in your head about the Dharma rather than in your experience. So you haven't explored the inner terrain enough to have a faith. So you just have this blind faith and we tend to misplace our trust in others. We're content to hear the stories of others about the Dharma and just to agree. You know, it's just like, okay, that sounds good, but we're not really doing the practice ourselves. Bright faith, uh, different from blind faith, is when a person or place or reading or hearing something begins to light the frame of possi- uh, the flame of possibility for us. And we know, okay, I feel like if that person can do it, or if that 
you know, we get inspired by a place or sometimes music or sometimes a child smiling or whatever it is. Uh, it opens our heart and it, it gives us that brightness that we see, boy, you see the innocence in that child and you understand maybe the mind can be there again in a different but wise way. Or something like that can come up for, for us. So it begins, uh, this devotion begins in our practice. We, we start having more devotion to actually practicing. And then we have verified faith. When through our own trials and tribulations, we know the way for ourselves. It's like there have been so many ups and downs that you kind of know, this is what happens this time, all right, let me back off on this, put more energy there, and we know what to do, and we really have faith in our own ability to navigate the way. There's a deep flame of conviction of faith in our practice. So that's faith. It's, it's really the thing that starts us out and it keeps us going, so spent a little more time there. The second factor is energy or effort. And we'll keep saying this along the way. It's sustained effort. It's momentum that we want to build. It's continuity of effort. It's relaxed, um, sustainable effort. That moment-to-moment effort that keeps us going. It's not so much a big physical exertion, although that's part of it. You have to be able to have that, even to sit in the hall, you know, to sit up straight. Um, it's continuity of awareness. That's the secret ingredient. Continuity, continuity, continuity. Faith brings the willingness uh, to put forth this energy in our practice and to keep it in a sustainable way. You notice that um, the, those um, marathon runners, they can keep going because it's not like a hundred yard dash. It's like they just keep their, they know what pace to do in order to st- keep going through the whole day. So watch your energy through the whole day. If you feel like you're striving, which means you've got some attachment in your mind to achieve something, then back off and just watch, the, watch what you need to do. Sometimes you just need to sit down or be outside and open your eyes and be aware of hearing or seeing simple things like that to kind of lessen the energy of striving or, you know, uh, trying to exert too much effort. So it keeps a thread of mindfulness electrified uh, through continuity. And in time, you'll be able to experience what's called effortless mindfulness, where as, as you keep this sustainable energy up, notice that it sustains itself. It, there's like in, in the, one of the last times, um, last, uh, in the last days before I came here, I was teaching a retreat and these were for advanced practitioners. Um, it was a study group too. And there were quite a few that would say, you know, I, it, mindfulness just comes up. I, I can't help it. It just I'm, I'm not doing anything. It's just there, and so they they get to the point where, or they've gotten to the point in their practice. Some of them where they see that it's effortless. It's just 
mindfulness will just come up because of the continuity. And um, there's no trying to strive to make it happen. So this takes very gentle, patient, persevering effort to do that. So I'd like to quote uh, some of our teachers. It's, it's good to kind of channel our teachers sometimes so that you're not getting just our words on it. Utejaniya says that this spiritual faculty contains patience and perseverance also. We need those two uh, factors within energy. It's persistence, not exertion or force. Don't wear out your mind or your body by striving forcefully when you meditate. Understanding can't develop when your mind or body is tired. So learn when to stop and be quiet. Learn when to keep going and put forth um, a a little oomph in your your practice. And you might need to um, really fine-tune that sometimes. So this energy dispels sloth and torpor, that sleepiness of mind, that kind of sustainable energy. So that's faith and effort or energy, two of the spiritual faculties. Those are both really wholesome qualities of mind. And the third faculty is sati. That's that's the Pali word for mindful awareness. And what it means is remembering to be mindful. It's not uh, remembering the past or remembering something that happened. Uh, It means, you know, sometimes we're going along and all of a sudden the mind is wandering someplace else. So there's a remembering to be mindful. It kind of brings your attention back to, okay, let's put the attention and the awareness in this present moment not in the past, not in the future, but remembering to be present in this moment, in this present moment. Mindful awareness functions like a very clean and clear mirror. It reflects clearly and precisely what's going on in that reflection. It isn't, it isn't kind of going after it's the object it's reflecting, it just clearly reflects it. It isn't married to it or attached to it uh, if it's pleasant or pushing it away if it's unpleasant. It merely reflects what's going on. It functions like a mirror. This is part of the Abhidhamma. It functions like a mirror, reflecting clearly and precisely what is passing through the present moment. So it's with carefulness, not carelessness that this happens. It's with a fullness of mind. That's why it's called mindfulness. And it's really the antidote to negligence. When the mind just neglects paying attention to what's going on. So it's not clouded or tinged by delusion, aversion, or attachment. So you can say that it's this particular faculty that is a major antidote, really, to greed and hatred, uh, or clinging, or attachment, 
and uh, aversion. And these are two, also, also two of the five hindrances. These uh, two are what are majorly seen clearly with mindful awareness, and that seen clearly actually dispels them. So whenever greed or hatred arise in the mind, bringing awareness to it, if the awareness is really strong, it really notices the impermanent uh, ephemeral nature of that moment. And it just dispels greed and hatred. Of course, it's, it's easier said than done, than seen, but it takes practice. This is when nothing is added in that mirror. There's nothing camouflaging that mirror. There's no veil over it. It doesn't cover up anything. It just knows the direct experience. Nothing is ignored there. So the Buddha would say in this uh, collection of um, precious words from the Buddha and the Dhammapada, this is Dhammapada 26, the foolish and the ignorant allow themselves to be taken over by negligence, whereas the wise treasure mindful awareness as a precious jewel. So another word for this mindfulness is non-negligence. It's that careful attention in everything that we do, in our, all of our general activities. So, you know, when um, we were all in practice with our teachers, um, I believe this is true for everyone here, and many of you there, that you were asked to report on your sitting, you were asked to report on your um, walking, and also asked to report on your general activities. And sometimes the trick questions would be something like, uh, let me know how mindful you were when you were washing your face this morning. You know, to, And so you had to be ready for like that kind of request to come and your ability to answer it. Or people don't believe this, but it's true. Sometimes the questions were, on what breath did you wake up on? the in-breath or the out-breath. I mean, it was really like, whoa, you really got to be mindful (laughs) with this teacher. Um, But it made you, you know, I really appreciated being with that teacher because it made you really know how to keep balance, stay present, and there was always something like you had to report really truthfully and precisely, so you had to see what was really going on. You just couldn't tell a story you know, about what you thought about that day. They'd ring the bell and you'd have to leave right away. You, you'd really have to say what exactly you were mindful of in a very precise way. It doesn't always have to be that way for one to be mindful, but it, it, it can help some people. So on an everyday level, when someone has strong quality of awareness um, about them, we can see that they're not, it, it, they may have a, a certain way that they look outwardly, but you always have a sense that they're beautifully minded. And that's what really draws you to them. That uh, no matter what their appearance is, you know, they're, they're, you can see their mind is really beautiful just by the purity of their speech and behavior and even sometimes 
just in their carefulness in walking. When I attended my first retreat here with um, that teacher who became my teacher for most of my life, uh, Sayadawji Upandita, I went up to report to him um, over at um, where this house over here on the left. And um, some of the teachers live there. And he was, I guess I was a little bit early, and he was doing walking meditation. And so I just stood there, and he couldn't see me. I was standing outside, and he was walking outside. And I was just watching him walk. And he was really gentle. He's a big, you know, kind of sturdy man. Um, Not tall, but sturdy. And um, in his walking, I saw, wow, you can really tell how gentle and clear. And it's almost like he's walking on, like walking on lotus leaves and not rippling anything underneath him, the water underneath him. It was so, so gentle and so, so clear. Um, And then when I, I had already met him in Australia and practiced with him. And just to see after four years, I hadn't seen him for four years, and then I saw him again. And um, just the degree of... um, he just seemed more peaceful and more wise and I could see that he still keeps practicing. I mean, he has time between students that he sees and he's doing walking meditation. So it's really inspiring to me. So this mindful awareness is a really important factor. It's the it's the heart of everything, really. The heart of all of our insight practice and all the other practices we do. Um, so we have faith, energy, effort, number two, mindful awareness, number three. And the other faculty is concentration. So that's a fourth one. So this in Vipassana, or in our insight practice, this really means a stability of mind. It's not that concentration where we just wipe everything else out and just kind of notice one or limited objects where we become um, sort of, you know, the mind at at that, that time can be really peaceful and calm. And that's an important thing in our practice to be peaceful and calm, and then to bring that uh, kind of tranquility and concentration to our moment-to-moment practice. But we can develop a certain amount of concentration or stability amount, uh, uh, concentration or stability on moment-to-moment experience, uh, even when things are changing, and develop just enough concentration to really the mind go really deep into understanding what the nature of life is all about. So this kind of stability of mind is able to see the perpetual flux of everything. And this is important. This is something that doesn't happen in pure concentration practices. In insight practice, where this 
kind of moment-to-moment concentration is on changing objects, the potential for the mind to see the impermanence of everything is there. But not when you do the other practice of pure concentration, because it's not on changing objects. It's not noticing flux, change. But when it's doing insight practice, the development of the stability of mind is really important to be with how things change. So that's trying to understand why we don't do this, you know, just stay on one thing so we just get calm, concentrated, and that's really important, but it doesn't produce the wisdom that's needed to really be free. And so that will be filled out more um, as we go along. So the fifth one, the fifth um, faculty is wisdom itself. And this wisdom opens because of all the other ones being stronger and stronger, going deeper and deeper into the root of the problem, the cause of suffering. So it's really able to see not just the fact of suffering, but it's able to see the cause of suffering and face it. Greed and the other side of the same coin is hatred, and what the whole coin is all about is delusion and ignorance. So there's a deeply seeing into um, the truth of how things are, and there's a deep ability to be able to be with it without flinching. And to be able to see it so deeply that uh, the mind is able to really be with the changing flux of life and to, in some ways, be liberated by that truth. It is able to see the truth of impermanence, the truth of the impersonal nature of life, the truth of the unsatisfactory nature of life, And you'll hear these words, but they'll be filled out more in our practice. You just have to have a beginning point or a point where you've heard them again and again, but you need to hear it over and over again. They say that we really need to hear the truth in order to be able to see, oh, there is a possibility to go there, to know that. And the last um, truth that we are able to see it may happen to be the first one for us that we see, is the unreliability of life to produce some lasting happiness. Because things are always changing. So when this happens, it's not a disappointment, it's a freedom. Because we're seeing things as they really are, instead of believing the old concepts that we've had from time immemorial. It breaks the concepts, sees through the delusion, overcomes the ignorance. So as pairs, faith and wisdom are important to find if you're keeping them in balance. Watch out when there's that over-intellectualization, even that, you know, dharmatizing in the mind. And just go back to like faith and taking the next step. And when there's too much faith and you know it, it just gets boring, sometimes you, you, know, you might have an 
You might have had an insight that maybe you ponder on a little bit that keeps you having faith. Um, So that's devotion and comprehension, same as faith and wisdom. And then energy and concentration need to be balanced. The energy is that active, gentle, persevering energy that we need. And that concentration is the mind that's not scattered, that's able to be on one thing after another in a very easy way. And of course, we're going to miss a lot of things. We won't be able to see everything changing you know, all the time. Sometimes the mind just goes off or we have to come back again. So that's the way it is. And we develop um, more of a continuity. It just stays with things as they are. So this is um, from one of our uh, great nun teachers, Ayakema, um, who after some time of being a mother, she ordained as a nun in Sri Lanka. And she was quite honored. Uh, she was um, from Europe, European and um, it was very impressive to me that she, um, after she raised her family, she became a nun, and then she died a nun. So she said this, she kind of knew how to put together the ultimate and the, and the relative in a lot of ways. She said, one finds oneself a more harmonious and balanced person with less difficulties capable of helping others. To develop these five faculties should be a primary object in one's life. The balancing of them needs to be seen as connecting the heart with the mind. So let's sit for a moment and and just let that understanding and those words dissolve. You don't need to hold on to anything. Thank you for your kind attention. Now there's a time for walking and then inviting you back to do the last sitting of the evening with the chanting of sharing of the, the merit. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.